holy ambition. When Jesus was upon the earth, like public teachers commonly are, he was challenged by questions from the opposition. One particular occasion, the Pharisees came upon him with this question, the lawyer being in their group saying, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Now, when the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, say that there was a lawyer among them, they don't mean a lawyer like we mean lawyers. Mm, That's not what they mean. What they mean is experts in the Old Testament law. Well, this person, obviously being an expert in the Old Testament law, wanted to see if he could get a rise out of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, the answer to that question comes from Jesus like this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How much? All the law and the prophets. You see, Jesus' answer to their trick question was not only a summary of the law. It was the primary marching orders provided by God to his people of faith in the law. If we were to take the law and summarize it in regards to its commands from God to us, it would be synthesized in these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor like yourself. Today, what I would like to do from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and following, is give you two points based upon that teaching as I see it shadowed in Deuteronomy 10. Namely, love God and love people. So let's begin with our first point today. Love God. Love whom? Love God. Our text begins with this rapid fire, left, right, left, five-punch combination from Moses in the very first verse. He's summarizing what he recently said, and if you want to catch up on that, I'll direct you to our podcast. But what's here in this rapid right-left combination is nothing short of beautiful, insightful, concise, and clear. He says, and now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Now, in the Hebrew, that word require, sa'ala, is an interesting word. It means to ask. It means to inquire. It could even be translated something like this. What has the Lord your God asked of you? In fact, that's exactly how the NIV translates it. If you're using an NIV here today, the NIV in chapter 10, verse 12 says, and what has the Lord your God asked of you? The very same word is used in the prophet Micah, chapter 6, verse 8. This is a verse some of you may be familiar with. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the same word is used when Micah says this from the Lord. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There it is. And what does the Lord require of you? Or we might say, what does the Lord ask of you? But I don't want the literal definition to envelop and rob us of this grammatical definition. In other words, church, I want to say this. 
If God is asking, then God is requiring. Amen? God is not asking like my mom used to ask when I was young. You think we could cut the grass this weekend? What she meant was cut the grass. Right? And this is what's happening in Deuteronomy. And what is God asking of you? He's not asking. He's telling you. These are the things that make for love of God. These are the things that make for the constitution of a person of faith. So you can tell me all you want about going to church. It means nil to me. And it means nil to God. The proof is in the pudding. In the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So Moses says, listen, what does the Lord require of you? Let us not forget, church, what the Lord has asked of us. Amen? Let us not forget or neglect to give a sufficient amount of attention to the things that God has asked of us as his people. Now, what I certainly don't want to do is get unnecessarily bogged down with a metaphor. Suffice it to say today that Moses is drawing attention from God's people to God on the things that have already been taught. And he continues to reiterate because, well, he says a few verses later, they're very stubborn. Anybody relate to this? Go ahead and raise your hand. I know you. Well, don't look at your neighbor and say, you are, you are a little stubborn. Shalise is having a fit over there. She thinks it's so funny. Al sure is stubborn. Yeah, yeah, I know you too, baby. So, hey, how dare you call me stubborn? God unapologetically looks down from his heavens and he goes, listen, you, you know I know you better than anybody knows you, so just give in and submit. We are a stubborn people, and it's so easy for us to go, look at Israel, and what we need to do is appreciate the fact that what God has recorded in his word, he has recorded for us and for our progeny so that we could read and learn, so that we don't fulfill in our own lives the same mistakes and missteps that were fulfilled in the lives of those who did not believe. Let us not be stubborn to that extent. So, What exactly are these covenantal requirements? What exactly is God asking of us? Well, there's a five-part response to this question. It's going to come up on the screen. You may want to make notes of this, or if you're one of those few people, five or six in the entire world that has a perfectly photographic memory, don't take a note. First, God is requiring his people to fear the Lord your God. First, fear the Lord your God. What does the Lord require of you? But to fear the Lord your God. A couple of things that I want you to note here, first and foremost, is that, first of all, the word LORD is in all capitals, capital L-O-R-N-D, not capital L, lowercase O-R-D, which means this name is Yahweh, or the anglicized Jehovah, which is not Adonai or Elohim. This is the personal name of God which is to say, it's hard to fear someone you don't know. It's hard to fear someone you don't know. Now, we get the general 
name of God, Elohim, right after that. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, Elohim. But, but what we're getting by way of Moses's articulate and clear command here is this. He's not just the God over the universe. He's the God who can be known. But do we know him? We are to respect him. Amen? Revere him. We are to venerate him. We are to adore him. That is what it means when it says fear the Lord. It means that we live our lives in such a way that we give obeisance, obedience, submission to him, and not our own conscience. Not our own convictions. Our conscience and our convictions are informed by the fact that we fear God more than we do our mother and our father and the Miami Police Department. It isn't about let me do wrong because I don't think I'll get caught. It's about let me not do wrong because God has shown me what is right and what is wrong. We fear him, we respect him, we venerate him. We are to have such a rich and robust definition and doctrine of God, who he is and what he has done, that nothing and no one comes before him in our eyes. Nothing and no one. Second, God requires his people to walk in all his ways. And that is to say, we are to live lives that reflect his principles, his ethics, and his morals. In the height of hypocrisy today, which has become so commonplace, it ought to be our conviction to say unashamedly that we are Christians, that we are Christ followers. Not that we are fill in the blank with an adjective Christian. We don't do that here. We don't do gay Christian. There's no such thing. We don't do trans Christian. There's no such thing. Now, there are Christians who are struggling with sins. Don't misunderstand me. But we don't do adjectives because we don't qualify Christian. He does. We don't say, I'm this kind of Christian or I'm that kind of Christian. I'm a deconstructed Christian. I'm a progressive Christian. I'm a. It's all the hype today to have an adjective before Christian. Well, what's interesting is that when Christian was first used in the book of Acts, it's only used twice in the entire New Testament, it was an insult, it was a pejorative term. Today we use it like a classification, but it was like a cuss word. Oh, we don't use it that way. The way they used to use it, those who we would call Christians, was like this. I'm a follower of the way. Before Mandalorian, the apostles said, this is the way. Now, when you say it like that graphically, when you, when you give a metaphorical picture of your feet walking on a path, it becomes awfully descript, doesn't it? Now, you, just, you can't walk just any path you want. If you want to get to that destination, you've got to be on his path. Amen? 
You can get in the metro rail all you want, but it, it's, it's not going to take you to Naples. It's funny how postmodernism has given us the allowance to think that no matter what we believe, it's all truth. But when you get on the metro rail, suddenly it's not as flexible. We are to walk not in some of his ways, but in all of his ways. My question for you today is not only are you fearing the Lord your God, but are you walking in his ways? Don't answer me out loud. I want you to wrestle with this. And you say, Joe, you, you hit a few notes that, that convicted me, and I feel like now I don't know. Listen, that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about are you and Jesus wrestling for the glory of God for your sanctification. Are you today the same person you were five years ago? Because if you are, you ought to be concerned. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says, you need to examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. Put yourself to the test. Do I, do, do I live like a Christian? When I read the Bible, does it reflect the life that I live? Or am I only reading the portions that are convenient to me? Are you walking in his ways? Thirdly, God requires his people to love him. To love him. This is great. When's the last time you told Jesus that you love him? We get stuck in the work-orientated Christianity, you know? I've been going to church. Hey, I, I serve in Awana. Hey, you don't have to tell me. I went to church twice last month. But do you love him? It's weird to tell some people that you love them, right? Seems out of pocket. Some of you go, hey, man, I love you. I'm like, what? <laughs> but if it's weird when we say it to Jesus, then we ought to have great concern. Because no one and nothing should possess our affections to a greater extent than our Savior. We should, without reservation, tell Jesus a few times a day, I love you. In our house when we're hungry, which is often, and we're about to eat and we're short on time, and we, do, we say, thank you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. <laughs> and then we eat. Uh, you can borrow that if you want. But the issue is this, guys. Who possesses your affections? No one should possess your affections like Jesus does. And if you're saying, I have never told Jesus I love him, but I want to, praise God. If you're saying, ugh, that's weird, we have to have a conversation. because we should never be embarrassed of our love for Jesus. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, 
you'll keep my commandments. It's funny how, getting back to the topic of stubbornness, we sometimes don't do the commandments that we have received from the Lord, not because we don't love him, but because that's how stubborn we are. Are we going to allow that war to exist in our own souls? I hope not. That's not a guilt trip, by the way. This is truth. You and I, as sinners who have been redeemed by his grace, people who love Jesus joyfully strive to live in his will. People who love Jesus don't debate Jesus. They don't negotiate with Jesus. They hear, they listen, and they obey. When you think of him, when you meditate on him, is the response of your head and your heart one of love and affection? I hope so. I hope you can say, I'm not good at this, Jesus, but I love you. Help me love you better. Fourth, God requires his people to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, friends, service is the Christian lifestyle modeled after Jesus Christ himself who told us in Mark 10, 45, I have not come to be served, but I have come to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Which is to say, when Jesus came, he didn't come, as would be his right, as the second person of the Trinity, and say, I want your worship. No, he came and said, I deserve your worship. But that's not why I've come right now. I've come right now to, to pay for you. To serve and to pay for you. We should serve God and serve others because our Savior Jesus himself did not hesitate to offer his life and service to the Father for our redemption. And I'm so glad he did. Amen. We should serve God and not ourselves, not our own interests. But we should serve God because he is worthy. Fifth, and lastly, God requires his people to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Stick a U in there somewhere. <laughs> Statutes of the Lord. Now this we might refer to as faithfulness and perseverance. Keep. Keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. We might call this point faithfulness and perseverance. I like this word, stick to it's not my word. You can have it. It's in the dictionary. stick to it It means that when you start something, you stick to it. And that's what Christians are all about. Once they start with Jesus, they stick with Jesus. The word keep that appears here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 13, keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord. That word keep happens over 65 times in the book of Deuteronomy. And therefore, we should expect that the emphasis has a purpose. But what's more, we cannot keep what we do not possess. Let me say that again. We cannot keep what we do not possess. It ought to sound foreign to us 
namely the command to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord when we could care less about the Lord or his commandments and statutes. If under the voice of my preaching in this verse, chapter 10, verse 13, your soul says, I want to keep the statutes of the Lord, then praise the Lord, you're in a good place. But if you're aggravated right now, you're not in a good place. And you need to submit to the authority of God. Church, this five-punch pattern is predicated on the fact that God is who he says he is and, who, and he has established with us a covenant. Now you might say, Joe, some of, the, some of this seems a bit redundant and you'd be right, but safety is found in specificity. Safety is found in specificity. God is not saying, listen, do your best at whatever you want to do. And, and you know, I'm just good like that, so whatever happens, I'm going to sweep under the rug anyway. No, God is just, and God is good, and God is righteous, and he has revealed himself to us. And Romans chapter 2 says, instilled in our hearts his law, so that even those who are not recipients of his law know that it's wrong to steal and that it's wrong to cheat. Otherwise, why do we do it under cover of darkness? Non-specific doctrine is dangerous doctrine. Non-specific doctrine is the kind of doctrine that leads people comfortably to hell. It leaves room for sinful minds to conjure up in their imaginative philosophies things that contradict Christ, things that contradict the inspired and inerrant word of God, things that affirm our feelings over and above these facts. Jesus said this, enter by the narrow gate because the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. And the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I think part of what we struggle with is a faulty mentality that creeps into the way we see things and leads us to believe that eventually everybody's going to be okay. Jesus himself says the majority aren't getting saved. Well, that's not nice. No, this is scripture. Nice has nothing to do with it. Jesus says, broad is the way and easy is the path that leads to condemnation. And how many find it? Many. But narrow is the way and hard is the path that leads to eternal life. And how many find it? Few. May we never forget that the specifics of the law are given with a purpose. And God is calling us to remembrance. To enforce what's being said, before we go to our second point, look at verses 14 and 15. There's an awesomeness about all of this. And Moses reminds us about the God to whom we ought to give our affection and our faithfulness and our obedience. 
in verses 14 and 15, he says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Pause there. How much belongs to God, church? Everything. All of it. All of it. The shoes on your feet, the breath in your lungs, the heaven of the heavens. Everything belongs to God. That's who the Lord your God is. And yet, as awesome as that is, as awestruck as we ought to be to try to wrap our minds around that idea that God is not only the creator but the owner and sustainer of all things from the atoms in our body to the molecules at the farthest reaches of this universe. God is sovereignly and beautifully in control of all of it to the extent that Paul says in Colossians 1.18 that Jesus sustains all things by his thought. If he were to stop thinking of you, you would cease to exist. In view of that, how humbling it must be. Amen? And yet, Moses says, but the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples, as you are today. He again reminds us of two things, and you can look at this verse and read it for yourself as I mention it. He mentions two things here by way of reminder. God is sovereignly in charge of the universe, number one, and number two, God is sovereignly in charge of this choice of these people. He says to them, he set his love on you. He owns all of it and needs nothing and no one, but he set his affection on you. And in addition to him setting his heart of love on you, he chose the offspring as well. God by Moses, is calling us to love. To love him in all of his awesomeness and glory. To have a serious view of God that numbs us toward sin, that numbs us toward temptation because we're so infatuated and in love with God that every sin looks like chewing dirt compared to being in awe of his glory. But not only are we to love God, we are secondly to love people. Amen. Let's pray. No, just kidding. <laughs> loving God is so much more poetic. Loving God is poetry and loving people is prose. Amen. Loving people is messy. It's hard. It's difficult. Not because there's a problem with me, but because there's a problem with them. Do you feel the same? Of course you do. Listen, I want you to see what God does here because he pulls an illustration out of history and he says, don't forget who you were and allow who you were to inform who you ought to be. This is a radical idea that we neglect on a regular basis for our own convenience. Let me draw your attention one more time to this second point, love people, church, while we are all guilty of this, we shouldn't be guilty of the short-sighted thought that leads us to be joyful recipients of God's love, but stingy 
recipients of God's love. His love should not stop with us. His love should flow through us. Amen? I'll certainly be the first to say that God's love for his people is unique and unlike his love for the world in general, though we know that God loves the world. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't have a unique love for his people. I love your kids, but not like I love my kids. And we have to remember that God has a special love for his people. But even in the midst of his unique relationship with his people, he is telling his people, I want you to love those who don't love me yet. Look at verses 17, 18, and 19. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. That means, as Isaiah 44, 6 says, he is the first and last, and beside him there is no other. Allah's not there. Buddha's not there. No other God is there. Only our God is God. We don't negotiate on this part. We're not putting him on a shelf among many. It is only our God in heaven. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, the awesome God. I feel like you have to read it that way. You can't read it like the great, the mighty, the awesome God. You can't do it that way. You got, listen, this has to be, there's life here, amen? And we're like lumping around, oh, God is so awesome. No, he's awesome. When we think of our God, everything should pale in comparison to his glory and his majesty. Don't forget, Moses is saying, he's above everything and everybody. He's great. He's mighty. He's awesome. By the way, he's not partial, and he doesn't take bribes. That's what we would call religion. That's what we call religion when we wear the bracelet and turn the elephant backwards and light the candles. Don't forget to keep the evil spirits out of my house and, and, and be nice to me, God. I lit a candle that I bought at Winn-Dixie. <laughs> oh, some of you are offended right now, but it's okay. You need to hear this. Your God doesn't need your candle. Take that wick and throw it in the trash and do it to the glory and majesty of a God who's provided for you so much he doesn't want the stupid candle. Take the statues out of your house. Take the santos out. Take the pictures out and sanctify your house to the glory of God. He does not need your religion. We are not earning our way into his favor. His favor is provided to us by virtue of the fact that he is gracious and merciful. He's not partial. He doesn't take bribes. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Get this. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. I'm going to say something real quick, and then I'm going to share two points with you. And I was just like, almost like I'm just going to sort of throw up a prayer here, and you can listen to it. God, help us not to forget that we were sojourners. Oh, man, we get righteous. We get so righteous. We go, oh, look at that sinner over there, poor person. <laughs> no, 
does John say? If someone says they have no sin, they lie. And the truth is not in them. Say, I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. And we need to repent every day. Not just when we first meet Jesus. We don't meet Jesus and go, oh, now that I know Jesus, I'm, I'm perfect. And then that poor guy across the street, he's nothing like me. No. When Paul met Jesus, he says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I'm the chief of sinners. I've never met a sinner worse than me, Paul says. Paul. But his mercy was shown to me as an example to those who would believe after me. In other words, Paul was saying, when people look at my life, they say, if Jesus can save him, Jesus can save me. Don't forget that you're just a sinner. Don't forget that you were a wanderer one time too, and God sent the Spirit to find you and bring you home. A couple of things to note in this text. First, I want you to note that God is impartial. God isn't partial, and the reason... He isn't partial is we can't merit his love. We can't earn his love. God's love is available to the world strictly through his goodness and his graciousness. Sometimes churches forget that. They become us four and no more. We don't want anybody else in here. We like our little holy huddle just the way that it is. It's a horrible philosophy. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Jesus says, love your enemies. Oof. This is even worse. Pray for those who persecute you. Listen, I know why he said this, because I've done it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You know why some of you are so bitter? Because you've never prayed for somebody you don't like. And everybody in your life is just like you, so you think it's okay, but you're all wrong. If the root of bitterness has planted itself in your heart, you're in a dire strait. If you pray for somebody you don't like, it suddenly becomes very hard not to like them. It's a horrible trick that Jesus set us up for. When you pray for someone you don't like, you can't continue to dislike them. I don't know what it is. So you, what, what I've done is I just, if I don't like you, I just stop praying for you. I just don't do it anymore because it makes me feel odd. Well, it's weird. No, I'm just kidding. But what he's saying here is not go be friends and have cold stone with your enemy. But what he is saying is your attitude, your what? Your attitude should be one that is similar to the disposition of God toward the world, which is what? Love. You don't have to have cold stone. I don't know why cold stone. Whatever. You can stick anything there that you want. Cold stone is a little expensive. You can do an Oreo McFlurry with caramel. That's a little cheaper, and it's probably better. But anyway, if you get that with a large fry, you're basically set. But then you have to walk the block like four times. 
Don't lose me. Stay with the point. This is not about reconciliation. This is about your disposition toward people who are not like you and don't like you, misuse you, mistreat you, abuse you. You fill in the blank however you like, but here's my question to you. Are you living a life that has a disposition of love toward the lost? That's a tough question, amen? Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, this is the way God does it. Do it like him. And then he says this, because he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and he sends the rain, sometimes too much in June in South Florida, but he sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Hear me, church. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the eat... Even the tax collectors do that. The IRS loves those who pay their taxes. They don't love those who don't so much. Kind of expected, right? Don't be like the IRS. God sends the Son on those who are good and those who are evil. It's what we call in theology common grace. It's grace that is exemplified by God to everyone indiscriminately, even those who don't deserve a sunny day on Crandon Beach, and it's absolutely gorgeous, and they sit there inappropriate with each other, cussing up a storm, drinking beer, and blaspheming, enjoying God's Son accumulating for themselves against that day judgment that they have no idea they're accumulating. But God gives it because God is gracious. And the rain falls. We drive down to the Redlands, and we're driving, and we drive in the pouring rain, and we look over, and there's a field with no rain on it whatsoever. We, oh, that guy must be bad. God sent no rain to that field. No, that's not what it says at all. On the contrary, what Jesus is trying to get us to understand and accept is this. God gives common grace and love to everyone. And so should we. We should not be partial in that regard. Now, as I said before, that doesn't mean there shouldn't be a unique love among his people. But there should be love for everyone. Secondly, God doesn't expect partiality. And that's the point I want to make here. The people of God are commanded, love the sojourner, therefore, because you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Church, we rightly condemn the sinfulness of sinners. Some of us are doing it a little too joyfully. But we rightly condemn the sinfulness of sinners. And you do not find a verse in the Bible that says, Hate the sin, but love the sinner. That is not a biblical principle. God is not going to send the sin to hell and not the sinner. The sinner is going to hell unless they repent and believe in Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. Only God can balance this idea of I will love them and be just, but my wrath is upon them because they are unredeemed and unrepentant. How do we make an understanding of that? I don't know. 
what I'm reading and what I think God wants us to understand is that we need to condemn sinfulness. And we don't hesitate to do it on a public platform. Using the prophetic voice of the word of God. Jump on your Instagram, jump on your Facebook, say whatever it is you want to say, but if you're going to tell people that you come to this church, do a good job and be nice. Can you receive that? Okay. But if at any time a sinner repents, if at any time someone says, okay, explain to me how you get to that position. If at any time someone asks, so you're telling me that you fill in the blank, then you need to be patient. And you need to rejoice with the opportunity to share the gospel and the love of Jesus. You were lost one time too. And may we never forget what it was like before Jesus. This is what the scripture says. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Before you start beating people down with verbal hammers, remember that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. I said can. It says will. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Which is to say, church, that as amazing as you think you are, you're not, and you're still saved. If you called on the name of the Lord and said, Jesus, save me and forgive me. I'm a sinner in need of redemption. And if that's the case, then you're saved. Period. The end. It doesn't matter what your struggle is because the salvation was provided for you, not by you. So if someone else is sinning and disrespecting God and being openly and blatantly ugly in regards to biblical principles, let me remind you that you are just entitled to your opinion as they are of theirs. And sometimes people need to hear the word of the Lord from you. And not every time the word of the Lord came was the word of the Lord received redemptively. Just share the word of the Lord. The salvation belongs to him. If he wants to use it to judge them or if he wants to use it to redeem them, that's not your business. Your business is to share the word of the Lord. Why? Because one day somebody shared the word of the Lord with you. And you were redeemed. But yes, there is a special place in God's family for God's love. One theologian put it like this. He does not even withdraw his love completely from the sinner in his present sinful state. But at the same time, he loves believers with a special love. So God loves the world. And he has an expectation of his people that as recipients of his grace and love, we would share that grace and love with others, as they call the sojourners. But we've got to remember, it's an important note, friends, that God's law made provisions for the sojourners, as we've learned here, but they weren't just left as they were. Let me explain. Consider the Exodus. When the exodus took place, when that event occurred and God redeemed his people from Egypt and left, when he proceeded 
with a miraculous judgment upon Egypt. He led, presumably, not only his people, but Egyptians that converted. The reason we know this is because in Exodus chapter 12, where the first Passover is recorded, God commands his people to include the sojourners, but he commands them to include them with the same rules and guidelines that they are to participate in. Another case in point is found in Numbers chapter 15, verses 14, 15, and 16. In Numbers chapter 15, it says this, One rule and one law shall be for you and the stranger who sojourns with you. How many rules and laws? One. And yet another point can be found in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, Ruth tells, who is a Moabite, by the way, she's not an Israeli, she's not a Hebrew, she's a Moabite. She tells Noemi, her mother-in-law, after her husband dies, I will make your God my God, and I will make your people, guess, my people. What I'm trying to say is this, friends. There's a trend in Christian logic today that seems to be stupefied by the common political era that we're living in. Nowhere in the Bible can those living on the extreme left of the regime pull a verse out of context and say, doesn't the Bible say to love your neighbor? That's completely incorrect and out of context. Loving one's neighbor means to help them, provide for them, assist them however we can. Amen? If we come across someone on the street, if we volunteer at a shelter or we send a donation as a mission to a certain shelter, we don't ask them for everyone's paperwork beforehand. Amen? We do it out of love, and we do it with the hope that people will come to know Jesus. But I will say this. What it does mean is that if we run into people who have immigrated to the U.S., legal or illegally, we love them, we give them the rights afforded to them by people who are made in the image and likeness of God. But we do not misconstrue biblical principles for political policy. A country without a border is in danger of internal corruption and destruction. God's word says there is only one rule for the nation. You don't make one rule for the nation and then whoever else wanders in can live by whatever convenient policy they find. One rule, one law. Doesn't matter who they are. Moses' final note is telling. He says, God is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt to 70, and they came back more numerous than the stars. I wonder what blessings God has in store for you. They didn't go from 70 to over 400 overnight, mind you. But they did nevertheless.
What blessings does God have in store for you? To close, let me say this. As God's people, we should have a holy ambition. And our holy ambition should be to love God and to love people. Each and every day, regardless of who's in our circles, regardless of who we come into contact with at our jobs, whatever hobbies we entertain, we should love God and we should love people. These two things comprise the holy ambition of each and every Christian. 